Hey everyone and welcome to the Supply Chain Podcast. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to us and also follow us on LinkedIn at Supply Chain Digital. In this week's episode, we're joined by Rob O'Byrne, founder and CEO of supply chain and logistics consulting firm, Logistics Bureau. So hi there, Rob. Thank you for joining us today. Hi, Emily. It's a pleasure. I'm glad that I'm at the end of my day, even though you're <laughs> at the beginning of yours. Yeah, I was wondering we might be on two different kind of energy levels right now, <laughs> but hopefully it's fine. I have, I have had a coffee. So for, the, for those listening, Emily, you're in London, aren't you? And I'm, I'm in Sydney, Australia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I haven't had a coffee. It's not for me, but hopefully um, my energy levels are there, so it should make for a good, a good podcast. So um, just to get the ball rolling then, could you tell us about your background and how you found yourself in the supply chain? You know, I often wonder how many people set out with supply chain in their mind as a career, and, I, and I'm thinking not many. Um, most people fall into it, and I certainly did. Um, I, I actually have a very checkered background. I was one of these people who was invited to leave school at the age of 15. And uh, it wasn't quite go to jail or join the army, but close to it. And uh, so I actually ended up in the British Army for 20 years. And uh, funnily enough, joined the uh, Royal Logistics Corps. Um, and uh, I, I specialised in something really strange. <laughs> That's, um, it was the... Uh, the storage and movement and repair of ammunition and explosives, which was quite quite interesting. But um, I, I suppose the core job was logistics, and uh, I, I found that pretty interesting. And uh, the Army made a big blunder because at about the age of 28, I think, uh, they said, O'Byrne, uh, we're going to give you some further education, and we're going to send you to Cranfield University to study a master's degree in logistics. I thought, well, that sounds good. And it was fascinating. And it, it just opened my eyes to such a, a broader world of supply chain and logistics. Um, I then went on to a, a teaching role in logistics within the army, um, teaching grad and sort of post-grad uh, people logistics. Um, and, and I just found that I wanted to, I guess, practice supply chain skills in a much broader way than I could in the military. And, uh, and so left and uh, came to Australia. Um, with, with a letter of introduction in my pocket, and I, I joined a supply chain consulting firm here in Australia. Really enjoyed it, enjoyed it so much, I started my own supply chain consulting firm two years later, uh, and then after a few years, bought the one that I'd originally joined. So uh, currently, I, th I think 40 years or something in supply chain now, and still loving it. Amazing, and what an interesting way to get into the supply chain. And I think you're totally right that a lot of people um, do fall into it because it's not something that's necessarily um, spoken about at education level um, like at school so um yeah that's really awesome and interesting and um, moving on talking about your company what does your company offer and please can you break down some of the key problems that organizations face today in the supply chain sure um, you know if I can give a little bit of a word of advice to somebody who might be starting a company right now don't use a functional word in the company name when we called the company Logistics Bureau, logistics was quite a new term. Uh, obviously, now it's not. <laughs> so um, I think that's why we see so many, um, you know, businesses around the place called Red Cow and things like that. They never date. But um, Logistics Bureau is a, is a very traditional consulting firm. So uh, we, we provide management consulting services from, you know, top down, left to right uh, in everything from 
developing supply chain strategies to uh, helping supply chains through merger and acquisition, right down to designing warehouses, uh, negotiating freight contracts, um, and all those sorts of things. But uh, we also have quite a, a deep passion in education. So we, we provide online education programs. And, and personally, I, I love education, I suppose, with my uh, sort of foray into teaching when I was in the army. So uh, that's why I'm, I'm very active on, on LinkedIn and uh, on YouTube and things like that. Just love sharing knowledge and supply chain. Um, so what are the sort of things that we're coming across? Um, we're very lucky to work with a very diverse range of companies, not just here in Australia and New Zealand, but also around Southeast Asia. And we do a lot of work in the Middle East. We've done work in Europe and North and South America. Um, and it's interesting because the, the sorts of challenges that our consulting clients have really fall into two camps. And you, you would think that consultants these days would be spending all of their time looking at AI and blockchain and automation. Um, and to a degree, um, businesses do focus on those things, but far more they focus on the fundamentals. Um, so we are constantly swamped with um, client assignments looking at how do I reduce cost? How do I improve product profitability? Looking at things like cost to serve. Um, how can I, literally this afternoon, talking to a company about it, how do we fit more into our warehouse? You know, do we need to design a new one? Um, you know, a company with a $200 million a year freight contract, you know, with multiple suppliers, how can we reduce the cost? So, um, whilst all of that new technology uh, and innovation is really fascinating stuff and we love getting involved in it, um, much of our work is still just the fundamentals of um, you know, getting supply chains structured correctly and making sure that they're providing adequate service at a suitable cost. Yeah, and I suppose um, we can obviously mention COVID here because that has affected a lot of them decisions and solutions. So. Following on from that, what have you learned over the last six to nine months about our supply chains? What have we learned? Um, <clears throat> supply chains have become very fragile things, I think. Um, you know, and it's understandable. Over the years, we've had a constant drive to try to reduce unit costs through the supply chain. Um, you know, we've had Six Sigma, Lean, you know, whatever the sort of latest thing is. Um, and it's all been about increasing the velocity of product through the supply chain, um, trying to minimize inventory held, trying to maximize service levels, you know, really monitoring the, the cost to serve, cost per unit very carefully. And, and of course, this has meant that our supply chains were stretched fairly thin. Now, I'm not suggesting for one minute that we should have had supply chains designed in such a way that we could withstand COVID-19. I mean, that's you know once in a century sort of thing, hopefully. Uh, but I think what it's highlighted is that we didn't really have enough robustness in our supply chains. And it's not like these things don't happen frequently. We have wars, we have supply disruptions, we, we have you know, lesser pandemics, um, you know, we, we get political unrest. So there is always disruption in our supply chains. And I think what people have learned now is that they need to understand at a much deeper level how their supply chains are operating and particularly in things like sourcing um you know we've, we've had clients who um for example were sourcing packaging materials out of china um and then of course as the pandemic hit they they had resupply problems uh, they said oh no problem we'll switch to our secondary supplier well guess where the secondary supplier was um 
you know, spare parts for their packaging machinery and their factories. Well, guess where they were coming from? So I, I think companies have taken a lot more notice in the last few years now, and they're, they're looking at their suppliers and their suppliers' suppliers, and, and they really want to know exactly where these products are coming from. So, um, and, and we're seeing a lot more dual sourcing now as well, of course. We don't want to put all the eggs in one basket. So certainly sourcing was a major thing. Um, I think what has also been interesting is at the customer end of the supply chain, how things have changed so rapidly. Um, many of us were used to, of course, online ordering and loved it. Um, but to a certain degree, we still like to go to the bricks and mortar store and feel the product and try it on and so on. Um, some of our consulting clients have seen an absolutely incredible uplift in online ordering. I'm talking 200%. Um, and, and that's on top of sales lift. So they've seen a massive lift in sales um, as well as a massive lift in the proportion of those sales being online and home deliveries. That's not going to go away. So that is a change in our supply chains that a large proportion of that is going to remain. Um, and a lot of the work that we're doing with clients now is, is looking at how they'll be able to cope with that change in uh, distribution channel. So, you know, we, we kind of paid lip service to a lot of degree in many companies about omni-channel and so on. Uh, now it's here in, in you know, big time and it's here to stay. So I think supply chains are, are going to be continually evolving. Um, you know, it's not a question of post-COVID or the new normal or all those other buzzwords. Supply chains have been hit hard and they have fundamentally changed for many businesses and they will stay changed. Absolutely. And you mentioned China, of course, um, the largest exporter of goods in the world. And I'm sure that COVID has just completely um, changed the way that the supply chain now has to operate because of this global pandemic. So I suppose my question is, what has the impact been directly on China? And subsequently, flipping that on its head, what has China's impact been on the global supply chain? You know, it's, it's interesting. I don't think we're seeing um, the full realisation yet of the, the impact on China. Um, you know, it, from a, a purely sourcing point of view, a lot of companies are now obviously looking at different sourcing strategies, sourcing from different countries, making sure that they're not just sourcing from one particular place. Um, a lot of those moved their sourcing quite early on. For some companies, it's very hard. Um, you, you can't just suddenly switch you know, from a garment factory in China making millions of garments to, to one in India. It takes a while to set up. So a, a lot of companies are going through that sort of process now. Um, companies that we've been talking to have started pulling back production from China into their, you know, into their own countries. Um, a lot of companies are looking at sort of network studies and saying what are the what's the impact of changing our sourcing locations. Um, obviously, you know China is aware of this. They would be seeing the impact on their own economy now, uh, and to a degree, I'm sure this is you know what's fueling trade wars and trade embargoes. And you know down here in Australia, we're getting all sorts of tariffs put on different products. Um, so it, it's going to be a double whammy. China is, is certainly going to have their economy hit. Um, talking to people in India, they, they're, you know, a lot of companies there are growing phenomenally because sourcing has switched there. Where else will sourcing switch to? Uh, a lot of people are saying Africa. 
Egypt is being touted as a great source of uh, garments now. So I think we're going to see a, a sharing out of, of sourcing around the world much more than we've seen in the past, uh, really for sort of risk, risk mitigation. Um, you know, what's it going to mean long term? Sourcing will become harder. Um, pricing may be impacted. Um, I've conducted countless TV and radio interviews here on, on um, you know, this whole China sourcing um, challenge. And, you know, will we start to bring production back onshore? Um, you can to a limited degree. I mean, there's some very interesting stories. We, we had a, a small company making um, face masks here in southeastern Australia. They had shrunk to such a size. They had one machine, you know, with like two people and they produce a few hundred masks. Uh, I think it was in March, the, the government sent the army in to uh, help them set up full production, you know, three or four machines, 24-7 operation. Um, so, that's, so there's going to be quite a push, I think, for certain products to be sourced or a greater proportion to be sourced locally. I imagine that particular company will be well used uh, going forward. People will want to have a local source. But what drives this, of course, is the consumer demand on pricing. So, you know, in some of these interviews I've been conducting, I, I often say to people, um, they might be banging the table and saying we want more locally produced product. But if you said to them, your kid's school uniform is now going to cost you three times as much, would they still want it produced locally or do they want it from China? And at the end of the day, it comes down to the dollar. And, and that is what has driven globalization, of course. It's, it's, um, you know, it was supposed to be a sharing of wealth you know, around the world and, and lifting people out of poverty. It hasn't happened like that. It's actually been chasing cheap labor, uh, cheaper products. So, um, yeah, it, it'll be a challenge, I think, going forward. Yeah, definitely. I think there's no doubt about that. Um, and I suppose there will also be a reduction in globalization. I actually found a statistic here which says that... Um, World trade is expected to fall by between 13 to 32 percent in 2020 as a result of COVID. Um, so, I suppose your thoughts on that? Will globalization take a huge hit? Again, it all comes down to price and risk. So, um, will I pull more production onshore? Highly unlikely. It's too expensive, too much capital involved. Um, so, I, th I think a lot of sourcing will stay offshore. Um, it'll move around a little bit, um, but, we've, but you know, globalisation is here to stay. Um, economics just will dictate that. But we'll see. We'll see pockets of certain products, um, certain companies doing well. I think by producing onshore. I mean, there, there was a, an interesting example I saw in the papers a little while ago about. Um, sorry, there are you know, all Australian examples, but that's where I am. Um, a, a company down in South Australia who was making ships' propellers, and they were three D printing them. Uh, and these were very expensive, highly technical ships' propellers. I think they might have been for the Navy even. Traditionally, these would have come, you know, from China, but um, it wasn't possible. They had to get them made locally. And now this company is booming, apparently, because the quality of their propellers is phenomenal and they can churn them out really fast. Uh, and so to a degree, there are lots of industries where people will pay more for quality and convenience. And I think that's the opportunity for a lot of businesses. So... You know, think quality fashion, 
um, you know, any, any sort of top-end products, um, it can make sense to actually make them locally, um, have a, a greater velocity through your supply chain so you're carrying less stock, you can be more responsive. So I'm sure we'll see a lot more of that going forward. Yeah, and does this also link to um, sustainability as well, I suppose? Consumers nowadays are more aware than ever and they maybe have a stronger focus on sustainability. Um, I wonder, has COVID impacted this opinion at all? Do people still want sustainable things? I'm sure they do, but it must have must be tricky to still be sustainable in the supply chain. I, I think the sustainability kind of got put on the back burner for a few months. Um, you know, if we look back, you know, starting in March for a few months, the companies were fighting for survival, um, and and they were, you know, it really was, can we keep the doors open or not? And, and, and a lot of companies went under. So whilst sustainability would have been very important to them, it, it wasn't front and centre anymore. It's coming front and centre now. And uh, I think as we look forward, the challenges that they we're trying to get through now during COVID and, and the changes that we're having to put into our supply chains, underpinning all of that, um, at, as we emerge, you know, who knows when, uh, from this pandemic, in a very different form, underpinning all of that is going to be sustainability because um, the consumer is demanding it. Um, you know, they're, they're, I was watching some fascinating TED Talks this afternoon um, about the fashion industry and how people are just appalled at, uh, you know, the impact of the fashion industry on the planet. Um, you know, uh, synthetic fabrics are provide something like 15% of the pollution around the world, you know, and they're, and they're killing our oceans and all sorts of things. Um, you know, people are wising up to this. Um, you know, they'll be, they'll be asking for more linen products and um, not cotton because that's a polluter as well. Um, so I, I think that's going to be the next wave really that we've got to face in the supply chain. We're, we're at a point now where we are, we're stabilizing, we're coping. Um, if we haven't already gone out of business, that is, we're, we're trying to predict what's going to be happening next. Um, and that's very, very difficult. You know, people talk about, oh, there'll be a vaccine by Christmas and next year, and then things will settle down. Well, think again, folks. Um, you know, I, th I, th I think we're going to see a s significant disruption for at least the next couple of years. Um, and I think during that period, as our supply chains are evolving and changing and adapting, sustainability is really going to start rattling up very high on the agenda. Uh, it's an opportunity for us to reshape those supply chains with sustainability front and centre. Yeah, and I suppose as well, because of COVID, um, everything has to be disposable. And, you know, things like masks and you go to restaurants and your menus and you can't yeah, you know, you, keep You can't take your own cup to the cafe anymore. And these yeah, things, yeah. yeah, exactly. And it doesn't, that doesn't help. I've seen the amount of masks even walking through um, the city the masks are just on the floor. Like, I know that's just littering, right? But it, it's either that or... Yeah, it's horrible. It's contamination. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's gross. And, like, I walk to work and I see masks on the floor yeah. and I think, firstly, how strange. <laughs> Why are you taking it off and chucking yeah. it on the floor? And secondly, yeah. how horrible. Like, these things are supposed to save your life, so you'd think, you know, you'd want to keep it around. But, um, yeah, so I'm sure COVID has... Um, in terms of disposable waste has just in increased tenfold. Mm. Um, 
But, but on the flip side, there's probably a lot of products that we're not consuming much of. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, on the flip side, there's not so many cars around, so we're reducing emissions and all this type of thing. Mm. Um, and I suppose, you was, like you spoke about earlier, like the 3D printing, COVID has been a big push for innovation and adoption of new technologies. Um, would you agree with that? Look, I, I, I'm kind of on the fence about that, to be honest. Uh, because I think it's very easy to look at technology as the solution to everything, but really it's an enabler. Mm -hmm. Technology doesn't necessarily fix problems. Uh, people, their imagination and creativity fix problems. Um, and, and I think that's where, you know, the, the supply chain as an industry and supply chain managers have really got the spotlight on them now in that they've had to start to be very innovative and creative in how they're overcoming some of the current challenges. Um, and then it's an opportunity to, you know, come up with a new solution, come up with a new process, a new structure, and look for technologies that will help underpin that and make it more efficient. But I, I think there's a danger of looking at technology as the answer. It's an enabler to get us to the answer. You know, so some, some of the things that we've seen over the last few months, um, you know, fierce competitors sharing transport. I mean, this is going back a few months, but uh, I think the three major grocery chains here in Australia early in the pandemic, they basically all got a phone call from the Prime Minister and, and said, look, can you guys talk to each other? I know under normal conditions that's illegal, but can you please talk to each other about your stock levels because we don't want you all running out of critical stock at the same time. Uh, and, and so that was some very interesting collaboration. Um, and then also the same thing happened uh, with transport because transport was at a premium. You know, if we look back at the, the days when people were buying trolley loads of toilet tissues, um, there, there were huge trucks thundering up and down the highways, you know, full of toilet tissue, and you couldn't get trucks. So uh, companies would, you know, keep each other abreast of uh, what resources they had spare and so on. What's going to be really interesting now is to see if that, that spirit of collaboration continues. And it should, because... I think for too many years, we've been told that supply chains compete, not companies. I don't think it's true anymore. Uh, I, I think it's about brands. It's about product quality. I'm not sure that the supply chain necessarily gives you that big an edge. And we've done a lot of collaboration projects, not just in recent months, but over recent years, where complementary companies would share warehousing and transport. You know, I, you're going to similar customers as me. It makes sense for us to use the same transport fleet, even to competitors. So, you know, you're selling TVs, I'm selling TVs. Why don't we deliver them on the same truck? You know, the consumer or the retail store owner doesn't even see the truck. They don't know what truck it arrives on. Um, so, you know, to a degree, supply chain services are a bit of a commodity. And if we can make them more efficient and utilize the assets better, then we should collaborate more. So I'm not sure how we got onto that, but <laughs> No, that's all right. Um, I was just laughing because when you said it makes sense in my head, I was thinking, hey, that does make a lot of sense because they literally have the exact same products. Why? Oh, yeah. I'm surprised in the first place that it was, you know, imagine three separate um, lorries traveling with the same stock to three different places. Yeah. <laughs> In the past, I have walked around warehouses full of TVs, third-party logistics warehouses, you know, and I would say to client A, why, why don't you use this service? Oh, because 
you know, company B's TVs are in there. Well, so what? Yeah. Um, and they all talk about, you know, the, the fear of, well, they, they might see us building stock for a promotion or something. Well, I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I suppose moving on from COVID for now, um, how about we speak about optimization in the workplace? Because we mentioned it, um, it was in the kind of speaker notes that we touched on. Mm. And so I'm wondering how can we optimize the workplace of the future to increase productivity? Well, productivity. Um, there are some amazing things going on in the workplace at the moment, and some are improving productivity and some are not. So if we looked at the coalface end in warehousing, for example, during this period, that's extremely difficult. So <clears throat> warehouse operators who may have been operating two shifts are now having to operate three shifts. The shifts are not allowed to meet each other. So, you know, you might have a warehouse with 500 staff, uh, 150 are on the morning shift, they finish, everything gets sanitized, all of the, you know, the lunch rooms get cleaned down, there's a 30 minute break, and then the next shift comes in. And the third shift are all sitting at home in case one of the shifts gets taken out. It's because obviously, if there's uh, an infection on one shift, everybody has to get quarantined. So those sorts of challenges are enormous. Um, hopefully that's not going to be with us for too much longer. So productivity in the sort of coalface end, the hands-on end of the supply chain um, is going to continue to be a challenge, but we're going to see continued use of automation and robots and you know, all sorts of technologies there. Um, you know, the sad reality is that robots are cheaper than people, so that will continue to be a driver of automation. I think what is interesting, though, is the, uh, let's call them the support staff who are not in the trucks and not in the warehouses and so on. So many people now have got used to working at home and companies have realized that actually they can be trusted to work at home and the work still gets done. Um, I, I have clients who have huge offices you know, in the city and, and, and outlying areas and they're saying, this is a brand new office. You know, it might have 2,000 staff in it, 3,000. We don't think we need it anymore. We can actually have a much smaller co-working space. Um, so I, I think in terms of those traditional office environments and, and therefore the productivity around all of that, we're going to see some massive changes. Um, you know, in my own business, where we're not a big business, but we haven't used our offices in six months. Um, I'm, I'm thinking it's a waste of time keeping them. Uh, but, you know, we'll downsize, we'll, we'll go to co-working space, we want space where clients can come to meet and so on. But we don't need offices with a whole bunch of people in cubicles and offices. Uh, what you need is um, you, you need to look at what you're trying to achieve with your, with your workforce and provide suitable facilities for that. And what, what are the productive elements of working in an office? I cannot work in most of my clients' offices. Absolutely impossible. They are open plan, they're noisy, they're distracting. I don't know how anybody gets any work done in those places. Everybody's in meeting rooms trying to get their work done. Uh, and so I, th I think certainly, you know, the, the office-based staff in the future will have co-working spaces, lots of meeting rooms. They'll be coming in, you know, one or two days a week for the meetings. That's the really productive bit where they've got to be with other people the rest of the time, work at home. You'll get more work done. It's less distracting. Um, and, and it's amazing to see how 
easy the transition has been for a lot of companies. It's now normal, you know, um, and, and we, we're all experiencing this, of course. Um, I don't know how many online meetings I've had this week, probably 20. You know, with one client, we had a, a, a mid-project update, 45 people on a, on a Teams call. Gee, it was easier than having to do it in the office, to be honest. Um, mm-hmm. Very efficient. You know, no, no one's wasting time going backwards and forwards. So there's, there's your productivity factor. Um, I would have wasted hours driving to the client's premises, as would a lot of their staff. Um, so I think it's going to be a blend going forward. We're, 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 we've learned now that remote working works for most businesses. What we now need to do is to understand what we've missed through remote working. And it certainly it's the chats over the water cooler. It's the ability to pop into a meeting room and whiteboard something. Um, but we're learning to overcome that. And I think we've just got to fill those little gaps going forward to, to give that to people. And, and some people obviously hate working at home. And they feel totally isolated. So uh, I'm one of the weird ones. I like being in my cupboard. Yeah, um, it's an interesting point, actually, because um, my dad recently um, has been told he's an insurance engineer. So he is on a computer the whole working day. Um, and the company that he works for has just said to him, our office renewal or for the rent is like in November and we're not going to pay it because there's no point. We're not going to have an office anymore. Everyone's just going to work from home. Um, productivity is the same, if not better. Mm-hmm. And it just makes sense because it's um, people come from all over England just to this office and that yeah. is not necessary uh, anymore. Yeah, absolutely. We, we had a, a bit of a dilemma this afternoon. We have quite a large back office operation in the Philippines. And that in the particular city where it's based, uh, COVID has suddenly got worse and uh, the mayor of the city has basically said, everybody's got to work from home now. Yeah. I, you've either got to have very complicated office arrangements or work from home. So we, we've had about 60% of our staff working from home. The rest now have to go home. Um, and there's some interesting discussion around the business because people are saying, what are we doing with our Christmas party? <laughs> <laughs> now, that sounds really trivial. But it's important because people get together, they bond, you know, they, they relax together. Um, it's all these sorts of things that we miss when we're home-based. Um, but over, over the months, we've, we've actually, as, as so many businesses have, uh, we, we've developed sort of coping mechanisms to make sure that all of that bonding and interaction happens. For, for that support office, I mean, it'll sound silly and trivial, we have a weekly show-and-tell meeting. The whole business is online. I, I'm online with the whole business. And, uh, you know, two people are picked out and they have to do a show and tell on, on, on Teams. And it's fun. And, you know, everybody gets to see what other people's hobbies are and, you know, or we get to see their new cat or, or something. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's 20, 30 minutes in the week, but it's, it's very powerful to keep people connected. Um, and, and I think lots of businesses have, have adopted things like that. You know, we, we mm. can't chat over the water cooler, but we can do other things. You've just got to use your imagination. Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose it had a bigger effect on some companies that work um, creatively and such and like in teams. Um, I know, especially at BizClick, we um, have a design team that works on magazines and it's so easy just to like shout across to someone and like, ask them a question and your, your answer is instant. Whereas yeah. I've had it where you message someone on Google Meet or something and it takes a good, you know, 30 minutes to reply because you can easily miss that one ding. So I suppose yeah. in terms of communication, um, 
it's it might be a bit of an issue but also it's very much a bonus like you said you're show and tell that sounds hilarious <laughs> sounds great well, it's a lot of fun <laughs> and I, I have learned so much more about our staff and i feel like them. yeah and i have to do it too so i have to do my show and tell and uh, it's a great way to get to know each other better i mean the the biggest thing I probably miss from not being in the office, which is only uh, about 800 metres down the hill from my house here, um, is that we would have impromptu sort of coffee chats. Um, you know, through the day, I, I'd grab three or four people to come, let's go and have a coffee, and we'd go three doors down to the hotel and have a coffee, and, you know, we'd, we'd bounce around sort of project stuff and things like that. That's pretty hard to do, that impromptu get-together. Mm. But um, so I think you just have to find ways of coping with that. But I do like the fact that, you know, if I want to have a coffee break, I'll go in the back garden and weed <laughs> the vegetables. So. Uh, yeah, exactly. I, I suppose the, the other element um, on, on productivity that we really haven't touched on, which has probably been boosted by this whole pandemic, is the gig economy. You know, so everyone used to talk about the uberization of this and that. Um, that's really accelerating now. So... Uh, for example, with the huge increase in home deliveries, um, you know, I, I get two or three deliveries a week here. Sometimes it's the big name transport companies. Other times it's very obviously someone who's doing deliveries for two hours a day after work, um, which is really interesting because, you know, you talk about productivity. Well, we don't necessarily need that huge transport fleet. If we can monitor the peak demand periods, we just hire people by the hour when we need them. And, uh, you know, with technology these days, that can be very efficient. And, and we're seeing, we're not just seeing that in transport, we're seeing it in warehousing as well, the ability to just utilise, you know, within hours, spare space as a warehouse. Yeah, and I suppose, um, actually, that reminds me of a service we have over here. I'm not sure if you have it. Um, Deliveroo, where they you can you know, go pick mm. up food and then they come and order it. Um, and we actually now um, in the city have a separate line outside lots of restaurants that just say Deliveroo and you'll just walk yeah. past and you'll see just like a dozen Deliveroo people just yeah. standing there waiting to collect their food because no one's going to the restaurant, of course, and they're just ordering food from home, which makes sense, right? Yeah, exactly. So, so, so <laughs> what, what part of going out for dinner adds the most value to you? You know, is it waiting for a table, waiting for the meal, or is it the food? Because yeah. you might as well sit at home in a nice environment and have the food delivered. So I think we're kind of rethinking in so many ways how, how we're consuming products and services. Yeah, definitely. And I think, um, especially for me, I know that as soon as you start ordering food, you realise the only reason you'd go into the restaurant is just because. There's just because, yeah. oh, might as well go outside and go to the restaurant. But it's the social element. That's, that's yeah. the thing you know, that we're missing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I suppose jumping back to our questions, um, we spoke about the workplace just now. We'll talk about the office and the office environment and the social side, which we've obviously just touched on. Um, and I'm wondering if you can expand on how diversity within the workplace helps a team or makes it more in innovative. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I, I was criticised um, a few weeks ago uh, by a very good friend who saw uh, a promotion that I'd put on LinkedIn about a webinar series come up. And uh, if you're watching this, you know who you are or listening to this. The response came back, not very diverse, Rob. It was, you know, this group of expert speakers and they were all 
in their 50s and 60s, white males. Um, and that made me think, you know, I thought, geez, that's not a good look. And then I was talking to a couple of other people uh, and they said, you know, there are some of your consulting clients or potential consulting clients, if they saw that that was your team, would not pick you because there's no diversity in it. Um, and that really got me thinking about how we structure our business and how our teams are comprised. That guy who, who kind of pointed it out to me, we, we had quite a chuckle because we, we talked about it. And I, I said to him, you would not believe the diversity in our business. I said, it was just so unfortunate that that group were all you know, middle-aged white males. Um, and and uh, this might sound quite amusing, but uh, I think at one point, not that people go sh shouting out uh, the gender they identify as or walk around with labels, but I, I know that at one point in our business, we had seven recognized genders. That makes for a really interesting workplace, I can tell you. Um, <laughs> You know, we, we have people from, I don't know how many nationalities, oh, at least 20, um, you know, probably half of our staff are not native English speakers. Gender mix, well, other than the sort of other genders, <laughs> if we looked at the two main ones, um, we're, we're probably about 50-50, male-female. Um, so it, it, it is actually quite diverse. And... I think that's a fantastic thing because the greater the diversity, whether that be age, education, you know, gender, race, everybody brings a different perspective. And um, one of the things that I enjoy most in running my own business is when I'm able to give a challenge to someone and say, have a go at this, and they come up with something that is so much better than I could have done. And... Uh, you know, that's what you get through through diversity, uh, and uh, it's giving people opportunities. It's yeah, you know, the the greater the mix that you have in the business, um, your talent pool is just so much more valuable. I think. But is diversity an issue anymore? Do you think? I, I mean, I I don't uh, I don't recall sort of going to a business in a very long time where it's where I noticed that it wasn't diverse. Yeah, I mean, I um. I suppose personally, I study um, fashion communications. And so um, I look into a lot about the fashion industry and a lot of people do their dissertations on diversity within the fashion industry. Because I, I do believe that there is um, a lot of diversity within the fashion industry. Um, it just depends if it gets shown or not, I think is also another thing. Um, it's about representation and people who are proud to show it. And how it gets you put in the media is a lot. I'm not sure if I should tell this story because it's probably very politically incorrect. Um, I need to think about it. But um, there is someone I know who won, who runs one of the best distribution centres I have ever visited. Mm. It is it's it's big, hundreds of staff. Um, the vibe when you walk in there is fantastic. Um, I'll say that the distribution centre manager is female. The workforce in there is so diverse. And um, it's interesting. You, you walk along you know, one particular area where um, picking is being done and this sort of thing. And uh, oh, this is a bit strange. You know, they're all female. And the DC manager goes, 
much better attention to detail, much fewer mistakes. You know, oh, <laughs> and, then, and, then, and then you go to another area in the distribution center, and uh, you know, there's um, all these huge guys, you know, from the Pacific Islands and, and Marys and things, you know, loading trucks. And you go, okay, I can see why they're doing that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, are people hired because of their gender and race? No. Uh, but what, what happens is that people are, are naturally being deployed. Um, to, to meet their abilities and skills, you know, and I think it's a wonderful thing. You, you, I mean, it's one of the most diverse work, workplaces I've ever seen, um, but everybody's kind of doing the thing that they're really suited to. There's no point in having all these Asian ladies trying to load, load trucks, you know. I mean, they're driving the forklifts, but they're not, you know, carting cartons around. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Um, I think that's really interesting, actually. I suppose... You do hire someone. Complaints now that we're talking about being racist and things. No, it's not. It's the, it's the opposite. Yeah, it's yeah. it's deploying people for their skills and for you know what makes sense and their characteristics, um, which wouldn't probably matter what um, age or race or even mm. gender it was. It's just you know if that's what they're good at, then that's what they'd be set out to do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I suppose we've gone slightly off topic, but that's. <laughs> Sorry, that was that was on diversity. Um, yeah, so I, I think the only other thing I would mention on diversity, and it kind of comes back with the uh, you know productivity and working from home. Um, it's interesting, I think, that people now are much more relaxed, not just with people working at home, but remote staff. So um, I, I have a I, I wouldn't call it a hobby business, but a little passion business. We run a, uh, a social enterprise in the Philippines, which provides virtual assistance for small business owners. So you can have your web developer and your secretary or PI and so on based in the Philippines. Um, there's a huge cost advantage, obviously. Um, a lot of people didn't want to do that. Now they're kind of going, does it really matter? In fact, I was talking to a guy in the, in the US, East Coast US the other day. Um, and he said, how do, how do I kind of tap into these resources? So how does it work with time zones? I said, it doesn't matter. They, they work the night shift. They work your hours, you know. Hell yeah. You know, I'll go for that. Um, so this this whole remote working thing is is spreading and having a greater impact, you know, on, on the whole sort of back office outsourcing industry as well. And people are getting a lot more comfortable with it. Off the back of that, I suppose we can touch on technology slightly and mix that in with innovation, which, we, which we've just been talking about. I, I think we've we've kind of touched on that. So maybe let's just sort of reflect and summarise some of those elements. So... Um, Firstly, I, I don't think technology is necessarily, uh, you know, the answer going forward. It's, it's very much an enabler. It's the obvious one. Um, and I'll, I'll give you a great example in a minute. Um, but, uh, but I think it's, it's about creativity and imagination going forward and, and developing different service offers. Um, too many businesses still are not focused enough on their customers in the sense that they don't really understand what their customers want. And it's not all about fast delivery. Uh, customers want reliability above everything else. Some want fast, some don't. You know, as, as professional supply chain people, we, we need to understand that and how we can differentiate our services. So uh, I think the creativity and innovation in supply chain going forward is, is how we structure our supply chains, how we manage them, how we deliver those services. Um, you know, we're, we're working with a client at the moment that has um, oh, a huge uplift in home deliveries. Uh, we're, we're having to fit out 
a new distribution center just to cope, and this is a big distribution center, just to cope with the increase in home deliveries. Um, you know, so that's a physical thing. Uh, the technology then obviously is, is the key enabler. So um, I, I think as supply chains are probably gonna get more complicated, um, you know, we're gonna have multiple distribution channels, multiple supply channels, that's where technology is going to come into its own uh, because it's so important to have visibility through the supply chain above all else. Visibility and cost visibility, you know, service visibility. Um, that's where I think technology is going to um, be really good. And, and uh, also, you know, having the digital twin where you can play um, different scenarios through your supply chain and, and see real time what's going to be the impact on that supply chain. So that sort of stuff is really exciting, I think, in terms of technology. Um, but at the end of the day, it's, it's innovative and creative people that are going to make that happen. And, you know, some of the, some of the best solutions are some of the simplest. And uh, then, then it's a question of just finding the technology that's going to help you achieve that. Yeah, amazing. Um, and we're kind of coming up to the hour now. Um, we've, covered a lot of the topics. Um, so as just a conclusive question, uh, looking to the future, we have touched on it slightly, but mm. what direction do you see yourself or the overall supply chain going? Where do I see myself going? Um, I, I will probably die in the traces. I mean, I'm, I'm of a certain age, uh, but, but I, I love supply chain. I, I love consulting and helping people improve their supply chains. I love the educational element of it. I, I don't think I will ever stop doing that. Um, the challenge, of course, is staying up to date with things. Uh, that's been a positive for me during the pandemic. You know, I've, I've been sort of shut up in my cave here in Sydney, um, perfectly able to continue running the business, doing all of our work as we do normally. The exciting bit is that because everybody is so much more comfortable now online, I am just talking to so many people around the world and have built friendships all over the globe. With, um, I was talking to a, an Indian student going to the University of Warwick this afternoon. If you're watching or listening, VJ, I hope your dissertation goes well. Um, you know, just having a chat about his dissertation and what did I think about this and that. Um, I was talking yesterday to a high school student in... Wisconsin, um, who wanted some tips on fast fashion and, you know, the impact on sustainability, doing a school project. Yeah, why not? You know, so we had a chat about that. Um, and, and what I'm finding is that I'm, I'm just getting so much value out of that with different perspectives, talking to people, you know, all ages and, and, and experience and so on. Um, and, I, and I do enjoy, you know, particularly talking to uh, students and helping them on their career and so on. So that, that is absolutely fantastic uh, to be able to do that and the connections that we can make online. Wh where do I see um, supply chain going? Um, look, I, I, th I think we've kind of touched on that. It, it'll be, number one, we've still got to get the fundamentals right. Um, and that's challenging at the moment. Our sourcing, our shipping, you know, shipping industry is in turmoil at the moment. We've got you know, shipping containers misplaced all over the globe. Um, we've got, you know, crews on ships who haven't got off the ship in six months. Um, there's a lot of challenges there that we've just got to get the fundamentals right. Uh, we've, we've got to understand our customer service offers going forward and, and how we can best meet those, those service requirements in so many different ways and new ways. 
We need the technology to be able to help us manage that uh, and give us the visibility of all of that. Um, but above all, we have just got to be more flexible in the future um, because supply chain is not something that is just set in concrete. We realize that now. Um, and that, that flexibility and risk management is going to have an impact on our supply chain structures. Are, are we going to build warehouses with a 20-year life with uh, you know, a huge capital expenditure on equipment that's you know, bolted to the floor and provides us very little option? Maybe not. Maybe we'll actually invest in more mobile technologies and robotics so that as our markets change, as our product range changes, as our supply changes, we can adapt with it a lot more easily. Absolutely. And um, I think I think personally it's very fascinating. Um, I'm sure the future of the supply chain will um, take a turn. I'm sure it has already taken a turn and just the level of innovation will increase further and further. And I, can, I look forward to it. So um, thank you so much for joining us today, Rob. I really appreciate it. Um, I think it's been a really good chat. We, we kind of, we, we've got around a few different topics, but hopefully we kind of stuck on track. And if I, if I may, a little commercial at the end. Of course. Uh, because I love sharing information. So um, we, we have a, a very uh, effective YouTube channel. Just going to have a look at Supply Chain Secrets. That's, I, I do weekly videos on there and share all sorts of tips and things. It's not a commercial thing. It's just you know, sharing information. We have yeah. um, thousands of subscribers all over the world. So uh, come, and, come and share your ideas on YouTube at Supply Chain Secrets. Absolutely. Um, yeah, let's keep talking about it. I, you can connect with Rob on LinkedIn or myself. I often like to share little things. So um, thank you so much for joining me, Rob. It's been, I really appreciate it. Um, yeah, it's been a really good time. Uh, thank you very much. And if anyone is still awake listening, thank you for joining us. Um, and it's been a pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. And don't forget to follow us here on Spotify or whichever audio platform you're listening on and also on LinkedIn at Supply Chain Digital.